coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss the dock of the town. Researchers identify a fishing document related to tensions in the Caucasus. Next up, a tangled Krebs. Reaction to the firing of Christopher Krebs. And finally, two truths and a lie. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 68, recorded on November 23rd, 2020. I'm your co-host Kelsey, talk turkey to me LaBelle, with me co-host Chad, artisanal credential stuffing Anderson, and last but not least for the first time on Breaking Badness, Joe Cranberry Sauced Slowick. Welcome, my Thanksgiving-themed friends. Hello, hello. <laughs> hello. Happy to be on. It's very good to have you both pre-turkey um, nap. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> turkey sucks. Let's be honest. <laughs> Tell us more, Chad. It's dry. Give me the ham. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do you make a nice Thanksgiving ham? I need to know this now about you. Actually, I don't. Uh, I don't do that either. I don't know why I'm talking. I I make a lot of stuffing. That's my move. Um, you know, like three types of stuffing. Oh, wow. Cornbread chorizo. You know, we've got some like sourdough uh, and leek. Um, probably one other type. It's the way to go, Kelsey. Oh, my gosh. Joe, do you have any comments on Chad's Thanksgiving traditions? Any preferences yourself? Uh, the The stuffing sounds amazing. However, I just have to feel that chad's doing it wrong when it comes to turkey like you got to smoke that sucker and brine it first and then all this heavenly bliss and awesomeness maybe that's where i'm going wrong that's right so chad if you pay for joe and i to go to hawaii then joe will make you a turkey and i'll just eat the stuffing and the turkey and so i I have nothing to bring to the table (laughs) all right puns Puns Puns. To the table. well i want you to invite me though and i'm worried that if i tell you that you won't allow me to come Mm. to your thanksgiving (laughs) you're invited (laughs) i have spoken to your dad we're close after the last episode and he actually uh dm'd me over twitter to invite me so it's it's not really in your control at this point chad all right Um, deal (laughs) all righty well let's get into our two articles today uh starting with the dock of the town so tracking themes related to geopolitical events can be quite fruitful for discovering active campaigns likely related to state-sponsored interests. And this is, of course, coming directly from Joe. And he went through a great example in a recent blog, searching for items related to a conflict in the Caucasus in late 2020, which yielded a malicious document. So there's been quite a bit of analysis on this document related to the infrastructure, which led to the discovery of additional items, which are outlined in this blog um, for the entire campaign, which dates back to 2019. So, Joe, I think it would be really useful to start with some context um, and provide our listeners with the what you describe as the follow the money approach at the beginning of of your blog that led to you uncovering the aforementioned malicious document. Sure. And, you know, a lot of this emerges from hypothesis development or having an understanding of tensions or zones of conflict where... If you assume 
potentially correctly, that cyber operations will track state-sponsored interests or state concerns that if you look for certain themes, and I think this has played out through evidence over the years, whether you're talking about something like Olympic Destroyer or the Ukraine power incidents from 2015, 2016, that if you are looking for cyber echoes of the broader event, you can find things that are interesting. Well, then refining that hypothesis, then it's a question of figuring out, okay, what do I look for and how do I find it? Uh, so figuring out some criteria to search for that activity and then figuring out a way to disposition whether or not anything that you might find or dig up is coincidental, like, oh, it's just another emotet fish that just happens to be in this region at this time, so I don't care, or, oh, this actually looks unique and interesting and is fairly focused on what we're talking about right now. And if you can figure that out, then you can try to identify things that align with more interesting operations and use that as a method to try to dig into fundamental adversary tradecraft or that start expressing aspects of adversary behaviors that can get you insight into how these groups operate or even what groups exist, uh, depending upon who's who in the zoo and what's going on at a given place and time or what operations are actually noticed. So by following through, again, that hypothesizing where do I think events might occur, what sort of things should I be looking for in terms of themes or keywords or other items around that event, and then being able to distinguish between noise and actually interesting items can allow you to really gain insight into potentially very interesting activity. Wow, really well said. And I have to say the cyber echoes thing, something needs to be named after that. <laughs> That's fantastic. The cyber echoes. Now that we've talked through sort of the framework that you followed there, how did you initially discover the malicious document? And can you describe the contents of the document itself? Sure. And this is one of those items that comes back to real fundamental aspects of cyber threat intelligence work is know your resources, know what your sources of data are. Certainly everyone or you know, maybe depending on who's listening to this, people are familiar with things like a virus total uh, or a hybrid analysis or an any run or virus bay or take your pick. But it's really about identifying what are my sources of information? How can I query these sources of information in a way that lets me really get into the level of detail required to identify things such as a document with a specific theme or purpose to it. So in this case, uh, you know, just hunting through a commercial malware repository through some keywords, able to identify that, hey, here's a interesting document that's referencing the introduction of PKK, so Kurdish related rebels into Armenia as part of the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, but not just that, oh, this is an interesting document, but the document in itself contained a non-standard, very strange template reference that 
includes a reference to an external object that allows for some additional level of functionality. So the combination of theme, like, oh, this is something that relates to this given incident or this given event, and then functionality, like, oh, I have a document that does something a little weird and not weird in a very standard way, combines to form something that, at least in my professional opinion, is of significant interest. Wow, absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious, too, because talking through a little bit about the, the document itself, but what did you find when you examined the technical indicators related to the campaign? And were you able to sort of unravel any additional infrastructure? Sure. And looking at the initial document or the starting sample that, you know, there Certainly some things of immediate interest in terms of both document structure with a encoded template object within the Microsoft Office uh, Word document format, and then a hard-coded reference to an external resource. But then there were two avenues for follow-on exploration based upon that single observation. One would be the uniqueness or potential unique uniqueness of the template object to try to find similarly structured documents within available resources. And then the other, and you know, going into different data sets entirely, is looking at the network infrastructure referenced and trying to identify similarly situated or similarly created items that may exist within the same time frame. And it was really interesting that based off upon this one example, we at Domain Tools were able to identify several additional samples that not just matched the document in question or the template format in question, but also were using infrastructure that matched similar characteristics in terms of creation, hosting, and other observations. And from that, we were able to really spider this out to identify not just immediately related items in terms of, you know, within the a week or two of when the item in question was first deployed or first uploaded to a given service, but even identifying items going back almost a year to last December with pretty strong consistency throughout the entire process. Wow. Well done. I'll have to say that spidering, I only like hearing that verb in security. Otherwise, it terrifies me. But when it comes to finding additional infrastructure, I do enjoy spidering out things. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious then, I, this all leads to what happens when this malicious document is downloaded by a victim. Do we have any insight into what occurs at that point? So yes and no. <laughs> so we know that when a one of these documents is retrieved by and opened by a user, that it will attempt to retrieve an object from a remote resource, the network infrastructure that we were mapping. The, the problem is, and you know, this is one of those things that really gets into the limitations of certain types of analysis and what we can and cannot know or understand when things happen is that I can tell you the URL specifically, and it's in the blog specifically of where this reaches out to. At the time of discovery of the document, though, and trying to delicately or intelligently retrieve that item, uh, it either was not there or it was designed and hosted in such a way as to only provide itself to certain entities. 
based on either where it was coming from, user agent, or a number of other criteria. So unfortunately, we don't really know precisely what the next stage beyond this initial document dropper would be. However, we do know that based on some further research into what some other organizations and other researchers have done, including researchers at Symantec and researchers at Kaspersky, that the overall techniques in question that were referenced mirror an entity that's been named Cloud Atlas or Inception, depending on which company you're talking about, that used a similar sort of template methodology to retrieve a PowerShell script from a remote resource and then execute it on host in order to further intrusions. So while we can't be sure in this specific case, it is a reasonable conclusion since many other elements of this campaign align with this Cloud Atlas or Inception activity that the follow-on activity that we weren't able to grab or analyze in this case is likely similar to that. And so we would anticipate a retrieval of some scripting content and then follow-on execution through the Microsoft Office process to further the intrusion on the hosting question. Wow, well said. And I think sort of a natural progression here from this question is we might not know exactly who done it, but do we have any sense of the motivations for this attack or, you know, <laughs> I use the word attribution sparingly and you sort of just answered that, but I'm just curious specifically about the, the motivations, if you can speak to that. Right. And in looking at the documents, while, you know, we can't unfortunately, step in the mind of the adversary and figure out just what exactly they were trying to do here. Um, we can make some reasonable conclusions that based upon the themes within the documents in question, and they are very political or very government or administration related, uh, whether you're talking about the items that relate to the Caucasus conflict or other items that are linked to separatist republics, unrecognized separatist republics, I should say that, uh, within eastern Ukraine in Donetsk and Luhansk, that it doesn't seem, or given the specificity of themes and the limited distribution of these items, they don't appear to be designed with the intent to monetize access. So it doesn't look like it's criminal in nature. So if it's not criminal, what is it? Well, likely something that's designed to gain initial access to certain systems, potentially with an espionage uh, angle or focus. And if we're looking at it from that perspective, and again, we've already had the link based upon certain technical observations and similarly structured uh, document mechanisms with the Cloud Atlas actor that, oh, like I see activity going on in Ukraine. I see activity going on in the Caucasus. Well, this is within Russia's near abroad. So this is probably Russian, right? Well, maybe not, because it's also worth noting that in previous reporting by Kaspersky and other entities, that Cloud Atlas activity has also taken place in the Russian Federation against multiple entities. And if you look at the specific victims in question, uh, Azerbaijan uh, is a little interesting given the dynamics of the Caucasus conflict in terms of who's sponsoring whom at any given time. But then in Ukraine specifically, that the victim 
or at least the themes used within documents would be Russian-sponsored entities. So maybe it's not Russia, but maybe rather something opposed to Russian interest in targeting Russian clients or other entities. Ultimately, it's really hard to try to draw any firm conclusions as far as attribution uh, on this or really any other matter without taking very large analytical leaps. So at this point in time, I would certainly say this is concerning activity, but being able to link it to a specific entity beyond the possibility of relating to this rather indistinguishable entity referred to as Inception or Cloud Atlas is pretty hard. And so we don't want to jump to conclusions here, but rather just say that this is likely some sort of state-sponsored activity, especially considering that other victims included entities in Turkey and Slovenia, but unclear who that might be. And honestly, from a private sector commercial threat intelligence analysis perspective, we may never really have the information to make that disposition uh, with any degree of certainty. I certainly respect that you're not rushing to conclusions there, Joe. Um, that was a very well-detailed explanation there of, of what you're seeing and what those motivations might look like just based on the facts that we have at hand. And before we get into the hoodie ratings here, I just want to get a sense of maybe how concerning this campaign is. And I know that there are a few people that you might like to give some shout outs to in this space alongside this research. Sure. And it is important to note that this campaign is rather focused on Eastern Europe, the Balkans, Caucasus region, Turkey. So if you're not really in any of these areas, it doesn't seem like this is that big of a item or cause for concern for you. Having said that, though, I'm a very big proponent that defenders and network operators need to take any and all opportunities to learn about adversary tradecraft. And in this particular example, we had a non-standard use of Microsoft Office document functionality, the template object, in order to further an intrusion. So even though a financial institution in the United States or a power company in France or a chemical manufacturer in Japan may not be a likely victim of the specific actor behind these campaigns, they may see some entity try to use or replicate the methodologies in this campaign. And so from that perspective, I would say this is reasonably serious and worth noting just to ensure that there is an awareness of this sort of technique and how to detect or defend against it. In terms of shout outs, I do want to make sure that I recognize a number of others that have looked into this material. I know I've had some Twitter conversations with individuals like Florian Roth, as well as Jason Smart of PwC UK, and then a real big shout out to the team at Black Lotus Labs at Lumen Security, uh, formerly CenturyLink, and uh, just understanding that you know we weren't unique in tracking this. We just happened to be a little bit further along at certain points in time than others, but this was something that others were analyzing, and it was really through a community approach and being able to bounce ideas off of one another that we, in general, could get a good view and handle on the events in question. Excellent, Joe. Thank you so much for those thoughtful shout-outs, just to echo the importance of intelligent sharing, and I'm glad that we could walk the walk there and, and all work together. Um, so Chad, now that you've heard Joe go into quite a bit of depth here, I'd love to get your, your hoodie rating. 
Yeah, certainly. You know, I think Joe has a really uh, good point there. Um, speaking on, you know, this isn't necessarily something that you have to worry about um, unless you're in that region um, and probably for a specific industry targeted, right? Um, so for me, you know, being uh, being here and, and working in the industry that we do, you know, it's probably a four out of 10. But in, uh, you know, if it's something that you're uh, over in the Caucasus region and you need to worry about it certainly a seven out of 10, if not more. And it's a, it's a technique that we should all be aware of as well. So um, it's important that defenders pay attention. I'm surprised you didn't take that opportunity to rub in our face that you're in Hawaii right now. Currently, Chad, that was a, a great opportunity. Oh yeah. Sorry. That. Normally I do that. Yeah. It's actually, I'm not going to talk about a number of hoodies. We're talking about the pieces ripped off of a hoodie. So, you know, currently in Hawaii, it's like a crop top hoodie sleeveless. The hood has been removed. Um, it's really just a light amount of material. But oh um, if I were, for instance, in, uh, you know, the, the Caucasus region, I would certainly have a near full hoodie and hood up. Um, so you're hoodless in Hawaii. Yeah. Hoodless <laughs> in Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> All right, Joe, what do you think? What would you rate this at? So I'm a paranoid person by nature and, you know, obviously if I was within any of the regions in question, this would probably be very high, like around an eight or so, but in general, for defenders and in, in, writ large, I would say six, just to make sure that there is some understanding of how this campaign played out, because a lot of the documents in question in terms of security product detection were really breathtakingly low. So this is really flying underneath the radar and seems to demand a little bit more attention. That's a great point, Joe. Alrighty. Well, thank you for that wonderful roundup. And just a, a reminder that these articles are always linked. Um, so if you want to take a look, I know Joe has some really great imagery and some graphics included in his blog post. So I definitely recommend clicking through to take a look at those. But now on to our next article, a tangled Krebs. So President Trump on Tuesday fired his top election security official, Christopher Krebs. Um, no relation to Krebs. I, I couldn't help myself I had to link this article to Brian Krebs so we could have Krebs on Krebs, um, but uh, I just had to put that out there. We always try to to reference um, the source of the information, so it it just had to happen this time. So so the dismissal came via Twitter uh, two weeks or so after the election was called for Joe Biden. So we're just going to get into it. There's been quite the response from the security community, so I think it would be. Um, a little difficult for us not to cover the subject. It obviously hits a little close to home. So, Chad, for starters, um, in case anybody's been living under a rock, who is Christopher Krebs? Yeah, uh, well, I heard you like Krebs, so I put some Krebs in your Krebs so you can Krebs while you Krebs. <laughs> we um, have talked historically on this podcast, right, about the spoofed site Crabs on security, right? Where it's all crabs on security, but it's been rebranded with crabs. Yes. Uh, big, big fan. Um, whoever <laughs> is doing that. Um, but uh, to get back to this, the crabs at hand. Um, so Chris Krebs is now the former director of CISA or the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. Um, it was dealing with uh, election things. It was dealing with, um, you know, industrial control systems, that sort of stuff. So it's sat underneath the Department of Homeland Security umbrella. And, and Chris Krebs himself, he's a career cybersecurity and risk management man. So 
previously was the director of cybersecurity policy at Microsoft, um, was a advisor to DHS before becoming director of CISA. So he's got a lot of experience in the area. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. And, uh, you know, per the intro, he was let go supposedly based on claims surrounding the 2020 election. So what was said and, and what happened here? Yeah, many things happened there. So uh, the first of which, um, and, and this probably uh, angered some people, is that CISA made a website debunking election fraud claims um, and kind of walking through. They also have a, a great graphic um, that Chris Krebs has posted on Twitter of like, um, what election interference actually looks like. Um, and it's using the um, pineapple on pizza model. Uh, so, you know, there was, there was a lot of things being posted there, a lot of good imagery and documentation. Um, but uh, what might have really got him, though, was uh, he said on Twitter that, uh, and I'm quoting here, 59 election security experts all agree in every case of which we are aware, these claims of fraud either have been unsubstantiated or are technically incoherent. Um, and technically incoherent in this case is referring to this conspiracy theory that was being touted of a government deep state program using a supercomputer to switch votes from Trump to Biden. Um, and then, you know, a couple hours later that same day, he was fired via Twitter. Not to gloss over the really important part of what you just discussed, but I have to ask what the pineapple model is. Pineapple on pizza? Is that what you said? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, we can probably tweet this graphic out because um, it is a good one. But it just kind of shows how interference works of like, a, you know, finding a hot button issue like pineapple on pizza, which people who eat that are clearly, you know, subhumans. Um, and then they, um, they'll go ahead and tell us how and, you really feel. <laughs> uh, so then they'll, um, they'll go ahead and create user accounts and, um, then, you know, drum up kind of this sort of support with these like kind of fire hose of information, right. Um, arguing for pineapple on pizza and then kind of, um, bringing that into the real world by staging these, um, you know, protests where people come and, and wave signs for their pineapple on pizza. And then by that point, they've created a um an issue that kind of uh has spread across you know both lines and it's influenced everyone's uh you know something that was probably pretty minor to begin with now it's it's in everyone's mind share so um, that's kind of how you can take pineapple on pizza and relate it to previous election interference claims i feel both educated and very hungry for pineapple pizza because mm. i am a big fan of pineapple pizza like i said <laughs> <laughs> moving on <laughs> he goes after my puns and then he goes after my pizza order what's yeah. next what's next? you're done you're done <laughs> okay, i got one more strike left i think if i'm doing the baseball math right um sports ball so um i'm just curious because there's been a lot of response to say the least so how have different political leaders and People we all look up to in terms of cybersecurity experts, how have how have they responded? What have they been saying? Yeah, it's been an absolute uproar. I mean, if you're to follow mostly uh, Twitter for your for your news, which is not always the greatest, um, uh, you know pulse on everything but uh, in the in the cybersecurity community people were pretty mad about it right uh, Krebs was known to fill that role effectively um, and was respected within the community um, and the firing via Twitter thing really irked a number of people who found it disrespectful to which you know I, I would agree I'd prefer 
um, to never be fired via a 160 character social media site. Um, but on, on top of that, a campaign came out on Twitter afterward trying to undercut Chris Krebs's work while he was there due to his degree not being in cybersecurity, um, which cybersecurity Twitter immediately lashed back at being that there you know, were barely any cybersecurity programs when he was in school and that most people in the industry have degrees in something else anyways uh, because it's it's such a budding and growing field, you know, and, and really because an alternative degree coming into cybersecurity, you can teach a lot of people to do threat intel or, or uh, you know, cybersecurity engineering work. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't teach the kind of things an alternative degree gives you in those alternative perspectives. So, you know, like even my own I'm English and French literature is what I studied, which is super applicable to cybersecurity. Um, but, you know, going to school for something that I already knew at the time seemed kind of ridiculous. I'd I spent most of my childhood on FNET, so uh, I think I got most of the education and probably like lots of things I didn't need um, by the time I got here. <laughs> and I think that's a really important conversation to bubble up. That, and we've talked about this. This came up especially during the um, the Human Element miniseries we did in the before times at RSA when thousands of us were together in a in the same space. Um, looking back, that was a, such a horrible idea, um, but just that came up again and again in those conversations is we need people with unique experiences and backgrounds to come in and take those transferable skills and apply them to InfoSec. So I think that's a very important point to bring up and certainly I know. Oh, sorry. And go ahead, more, more diverse teams too, uh, particularly 100%. in the research and uh, intelligence space, like always lead to a more accurate uh, worldview and picture. So it's a uh, diversity is key in, in this industry. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I'm really glad that you brought up that point. And, and Joe, I know Chad and I would both love to pick your brain on this topic, especially coming from ICS. What do you think about all of this? Sure. So a couple of disclaimers. First, I'm a philosophy undergraduate major, so I probably don't have any right to be here either, I guess, if I need a cybersecurity degree to be in this field. But that aside, a more important disclaimer, I, I personally consider Chris Krebs to be not just a significant person in this industry, but I also consider him to be kind of a friend and not just kind of a friend, but a friend because he really took on the mantle of, you know, no offense to anyone who has worked DHS's cyber mission since their inception, but through multiple iterations, they've always been an organization seemingly in flux and always trying to find where they fit in. And honestly, the last couple of years with CISA's foundation and then Krebs leading that mission, they seem to really find their stride. So putting election security completely to the side for the moment, Krebs was able to really build CISA up into a agency that could pull its weight, that was finally able to leverage the talent that they had within the organization and really work with members of industry, with the security community and others. And I say this from my dealings with CISA when I was an employee at Dragos until not too long ago. So it's really unfortunate that when one of the major problems or 
concerns with DHS's cyber efforts as being the owner of U.S. domestic cyber defense concerns is constant change and flux that when they finally land on a leader that was able to really bring together and best utilize the agency's resources and existing personnel, that then he gets fired via tweet, which is not just shocking and unfortunate, but incredibly disheartening and really pushes back DHS's mission, maybe not back to where it was before CISA was founded, but it really represents a setback, not just in terms of Chris's personal contributions and integrity for the election defense and integrity mission, but also for CISA's larger mission of serving as the focal point for U.S. critical infrastructure defense. So having this over ostensibly political reasons is really unfortunate and likely short-sighted. Um, having said that, you know, we can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Uh, so we're kind of left with this as it is. I'm sure Chris will find very lucrative, very gainful employment somewhere else after he gets out of his Twitter divorce phase of commenting on things uh, as he sees fits now that he is free to do so. But overall, it, this just seems like it's a setback for defense in general, and the reasons behind it seem unsatisfactory. Very well said. Yeah, well, there's lots of repercussions here, and you're absolutely right. Chris Krebs is somebody that's incredibly respected in the space, and I'm sure he'll have have his uh, his choice there. So, of course, we wish him the absolute best and appreciate his service. And I think you know something I'd like to open up for discussion is just generally about this election cycle when it comes to disinformation, nation state participation, etc. And Chad, I'm curious what your thoughts were here and just generally how <laughs> how you feel this one went <laughs> yeah there you know there was surprisingly little um nation state participation or influence you know um from what we've seen i i almost wonder if the initial mission right was division um and they saw that happening in a bad enough situation that we're in now that they were like well like why commit the resources let's go do something somewhere else um, it, it feels like they, you know, lit two dumpsters on fire on the top of like opposing hills and rolled them down those hills in 2016. And now they're just careening toward each other. Um, I don't know, uh, how that's going to end, but I feel like it's going to be pretty ugly. Uh, that's kind of, that's kind of my feeling on that. But yeah, there's been surprisingly little, um, uh, disinfo compared to what we expected, I think, as, um, researchers in this space for this election. Um, there, there's some things that have been going around, but a lot of the echo chambers are now just creating their own um, memes and and kind of nonsense. You know, it's a it's a strange like auto generating feedback loop going on. I feel oddly at peace with <laughs> the visual of the two dumpster fires approaching each other. <laughs> Mm. on a, a very quick and loud descent that's i'm going to meditate to that later i think um <laughs> no problem yeah um <laughs> <you> it, <laughs> <laughs> this makes me miss my little desk toy back at the office which is one of those miniature um dumpsters that has a 
tea light in it. So it's like a desktop dumpster fire. Oh, that's um, lovely. That's so sweet. It is quite lovely. It's my favorite holiday de holiday decoration. I don't have it this year. I'll have to go back and get it. Um, <laughs> so I guess the final thing I'll ask you, Chad, is how you know how bad is this? What does this mean for the future of CISA, in your opinion? What are some implications of this decision by President Trump? Yeah, it, you know, I think we're seeing a big test of many government systems and procedures right now. You know, there's this elasticity of these things of um, how far they can be stretched and exercised. Um, and, you know, we're really hoping that they uh, continue to work with these I don't know, bumper guards that we have in place to uh, keep democracy going. Uh, a th third of our electorate, you know, believes that there was election tampering at this point. Um, and, you know, Krebs and the folks at CISA were trying to maintain that trust in our elections, um, you know, because if that is undermined, then, you know, just is going to lead to even worse outcomes when a third of people feel that they can't even be fairly represented. Uh, I think that the Giuliani conference, you know, the other day just showed how, um, you know, far these things can be stretched and what can be said and, um, you know, what people are willing to believe, um, you know, in, in their attempt to achieve their goals, this administration. Yeah. So um, I think we'll see these systems hold, though, um, and, you know, possibly be threatened again in the future. Um, hopefully they'll hold up then as well. Um, but as for CISA, I, I hope that when Biden takes office, you know, he rehires someone who's equally competent, um, you know, as a policy person for the job at CISA and that we can um, move forward with maybe even placing more guardrails in place to uh, safeguard elections and, and really like prove their um, legitimacy through, you know, I don't know, some sort of there has to be more ways other than just, you know, signatures on ballots. We can have uh, there's technical solutions for this, right? You know, cryptographic signatures, whatever we need to do to let people know that um, their vote matters and that it got all the way to the end. Well said. And Joe, at this time, I'd love to hear your your hoodie rating. And you, you got into this and sort of hinted at um, your concerns as this is sort of like a myopic choice. So what would you rate this at? Krebs is firing or the elections and con concerns in general? Um, I would say let's go with Krebs is firing. So I, I will say actually that this is probably a four out of 10, not as a disrespect to Krebs, but rather as a point of respect to the team that he's built at CISA. So while it's certainly unfortunate to have a leadership figure removed so abruptly and lack of decorum, <laughs> however you want to put it. But at the same time, it's not just one person that's over there. And I, I personally know people who are over at CISA executing that mission. They're not going anywhere and they're still doing their jobs. So while it certainly is concerning to have a really meaningful figurehead and really meaningful leader removed in such a, a fashion. At the same time, the people who are doing the day-to-day -day work at CISA, they're not going anywhere and they're continuing the mission as best they can. So it's concerning, but it's not an emergency. Well said. The signs of an outstanding leader. Um, and Chad, what, what would you say your hoodie rating is here? Yeah, I would agree with Joe. You know that I, um, I would... 
assume that as being a good leader that, uh, you know, Krebs built a great team in place and that that will, you know, survive long behind his tenure there. Um, I would I would even go lower. I would say uh, I would make this a one out of 10 hoodies as in send one of those hoodies to Chris Krebs um, so he can have a nice soft Breaking Badness hoodie to wear <laughs> while he good. tweets. Yes. Yes. If somebody can acquire um, a P.O. box to send that to for him, I'd be more than happy to send him a Breaking <laughs> Badness. I'm sure that's what's on his mind right now, honestly. So um, Everyone needs a comfortable hoodie when they're up at like 2.30 in the morning on Twitter. Um, it's it's like the, the uniform of the late night tweet. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, let's let's finish off our episode here with our game Two Truths and a Lie, and and how this works is very similar to the beloved game Two Truths and a Lie. But rather than talking about ourselves, Chad is actually going to introduce three article titles, two of which are true, one of which is a lie, and Joe and I are going to try to sniff it out. And of course, there's a point system, and let it be known, Joe, you are playing for Tim Helming's points. So if you have anything to hold over his head, feel free to use that now. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> all right chad um, why don't you hit us with those articles all right um so let's see uh fbi warns of spoofed federal agency domains being registered um and it, joe by the way these are all articles that would have happened this week um just so we time box it here um See article number two, Zero SSL releases Let's Encrypt alternative for free certificates via ACME. And then number three is Hacker Post Zero Day exploit for thousands of MicroTik routers. Hmm. <laughs> These are good ones, Chad. Thank you. You're welcome. Um. Wow. I don't know. Joe, do you have any gut instinct here on what's a lie? Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with number two as a lie. <laughs> I have no idea, so I'm going to side with Joe here, and I'm going to go all in. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Do we get a drum roll? Yeah, I know yeah. without so, Tim Helming, there's no, uh, there's there's no, no timpanies. Timpani. Yeah, boom, well, I'm sorry. Boom. Like one, I'm on the fence with two. Like, yeah, that seems pretty. No, I don't. I don't think so. And then three, like, no, that's true. So that, <laughs> that's where I'm going right now. Thanks for showing your work, Joe. Yeah, I believe you. I have trust in you. All right, your trust um, is misplaced. <laughs> <laughs> All right, drum roll on my desk. Not as cool as Tim Helming's drum roll. Go ahead, Chad. Uh. Number three was the lie. There were no <gasps> new zero days for uh, MicroTik routers, even though I would be surprised. If, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there uh, were, but nothing that was coming through my RSS feeds. Um, zero SSL did release a Let's Encrypt alternative for free certificates um, served up via the Acme protocol, just like Let's Encrypt today, um, which is kind of exciting to have a backup to Let's Encrypt. Um, and also surprising that they, uh, you know, as a, as a certificate authority would be on board with that. They just like probably saw their money going away and were like, let's participate in not making money. 
I am embarrassed. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. Oh, and the FBI did release, I think it was two days ago. They, it was, uh, or no, no, it was yesterday. They, uh, yeah, lots of FBI spoofed federal agency domains. Or no, sorry, FBI isn't spoofing them. Federal agency domains being spoofed by someone. Um, so. Yeah. Oh, so wow. That's one of those, like, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Like, just tell me what your time span is. Like, within the last 15 minutes. Eh, probably yeah. not. Last yeah. month, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's why I that's why I wanted to time box it with the uh with the last week. Um just in case. Yeah. But I guess someone's probably always doing that. Um I know I registered my new IRS-FBI-gov.io domain. Um <laughs> I plan to make use of soon to get rich and retire to <laughs> um, FBI.cf. It's where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh fbi.cancer research gets them every time Um, (laughs) oh shoot my favorite zld Uh, (laughs) awesome well wonderful job you two appreciate you going into such depth and discussing some um, rather difficult topics this week Uh, we will be off next week in observance of thanksgiving but we hope that you all stay safe and healthy and get to share in love with your family um, over zoom or in a safe way and we'll see you early december on breaking badness that's about all we have for this week you can find us on twitter at domain tools all of the articles and iocs mentioned today will be included in our blog post which can be found at domaintools.com resources slash podcasts Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click. <laughs>